1961, Joseph Heller's novel Catch-22 took aim at war, big government, and capitalism all at one satirical fell swoop. Written in the lull between Korea and Vietnam, this book takes the supposedly good war and pulls back the curtain to reveal its ugly face. Somewhere in the comedic spectrum between M.A.S.H. and Gravity's Rainbow, Catch-22 takes a leap halfway through from the zany to the sublime that earns it more serious consideration as a classic. Yes, war is hell, but it is also a time for profiteering, and we've cornered the market on cheap Sicilian scotch exports. So pour yourself some Johnny Walker with soda, and accept our apologies for the somewhat diminished audio quality on episode 35 of Toasting the Classics, Catch-22. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Toasting the Classics. My name is Clint Lanier. Dave MacArthur. This is episode the, 35. Episode I feel 35. like that's another milestone. That's right. This is the show where we talk about a, well, we present a classic work of art of some type. Right. Creative, Something people creative, call classic. Some creative thing, and we examine it, and we dissect it, and we taste it, and we sit on it, and yes. uh, figure out if it really is a classic or not. Because we drink are, a drink related to the classic while discussing that. Right. And we are authorities on all things classic, apparently. So. Yeah. Well, especially because we have such a narrow purview here. We only do books, movies, video games, uh, TV shows, comic board books. games, comic books. So, I mean, <laughs> right. we're experts in all those yeah, areas. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, eventually we'll get to sculpture, maybe yeah. abstract art, maybe uh, performance art, huh? So there are. So what are we talking about this week, Dave? We are talking about a book that you chose, um, Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Catch-22 by Joseph Publication Heller. date 1961, as we've established mm-hmm. in the pre-game conference. How would you? How would we summarize this book for people who might not have read it? Probably for the masses that haven't read it. Have you ever seen MASH? Yes. So can you imagine a book, novelization of MASH, except it takes place in World War II? Sort of like that, right? You just read Catch-22. That's, that's, <laughs> You think so? I think I, mean, that, I think that, Mash that is just like a complete sequel and rip spiritual off. child rip off of, of Catch Twenty Two. Yeah. Now I've never seen the film. That I actually, while reading this book, mm-hmm. wrote that down on my list of movies to watch in the future at some point. The film was actually really the film was very good. I, I always liked the show when yeah. I was a kid, even I mean, though it's depressing. The very first episode, I think the first seasons of the TV show Mash were just like the yeah, just like the movie. I think so. Um, oh, just like the film. Yeah, just right. like the, the actual film. And they were the best ones. And then it became, you know, they, they started doing a bunch of different messages. A more zany. Stuff like that. Well, the first I, ones were very zany. I think the but, show Mash lasted considerably longer than the actual Korean War. If I remember correctly, yeah. I believe it's like War, eight or nine years yeah. that the show was on. The Korean War is just 50 to 53. Right. And they're fighting the Chinese the whole time, so it's really only 51 to 53. It's like the last right. two years the of the war. Years, so. yeah. Well, I would say Catch-22, it's a little bit broader than that, because it is about World War II, not about the Korean War. Right. Um, it's about a bomber squadron rather than a medical you know, facility. The protagonist is a guy named Yusarian. Huh. Uh, is it John Yusarian? Uh, Yusarian is his last name. I think I... I Remember his first name? I just call him Yo-Yo. Yo-Yo, yeah. I just call him Yo-Yo. Yeah, yeah, one of the boys. So, um, uh, yeah, Yosarian is the protagonist. He's a bombardier on, on a... On you know, a, Joseph Heller, though, did say he was involved in, in World War II, and he did. This this was his experience yeah, in World War II. he was a bombardier. But yeah. his feelings about war that are in this book mm-hmm. come from the Korean War. Korean War. Well, he wrote, so, he wrote this, he started writing in 53, mm-hmm. finished in 61, published in 61, rather. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a short story in 55 that, I can't remember which chapter that that one was based off of, but uh, it was a short story in 55 where he sort of came up with the crux of what he was going to talk about. And that's where he came up with Catch-22, like the actual, mm-hmm. uh, he called it something different, like Catch-14 or something like that. Can you explain what Catch-22 is? I, I just also want to apologize to everyone for us not having this be episode 22. <laughs> right. I don't know why we didn't uh, you know, plan ahead like that. But, well, it took about um, 22 weeks to read this book, first of all. Catch-22. So there's maybe five or six instances of a Catch-22 in this book, but the actual Catch-22 is which one? It's the one about not letting a pilot declare himself unfit to fly. Well, they're all Catch-22 is say, pretty much all the same. It's, 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 it's a trap that you are trapped in and you can't get out of it because it's trapped you or something like that. It's it, like, it's a logical... It's a paradox. Yeah, it's a logical it, paradox. It's a, I think the main one that the, that the book is named after is the one that um, in order for a pilot to be unfit to fly... He has to be crazy. He has to be crazy. But, but if somebody's afraid to fly, that proves that they're not crazy. No, 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 no. Hold on. I, I, I get mixed up. Okay, so, I sort so of lost it. I, in, in, order, in order to be grounded, you have to be crazy. Right. Right? But to declare yourself crazy means you're sane. 
Right. So you can't be crazy. So you're unfit to make the declaration if you're actually crazy. Right, or something right. like that. Yeah. It, it's something where like only somebody crazy would want to fly. Right. Right. But to declare that person crazy then, or to declare that they're crazy would mean that they're sane. Right. But a crazy person would never declare themselves crazy. Which? Because they're crazy. I'm going to use begs the question wrong, and as a rhetoric professor, I'd like you to straighten me out on this, but that begs the question, what's the biggest target of the book? Is it bureaucracy or war? Which is the greatest evil, according to this book? Because I can see bureaucracy is the big enemy in this guy's personal life. But the thing is, as it it turns out, though, with Milo Minderbender, Mm -hmm. war itself is bureaucracy. Remember, Milo turns it into a, a capitalistic yeah, well, enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. the Germans, yeah. he's getting paid to let the Germans bomb them. Yeah. Right? And then he's getting paid to to organize the Germans and the aircraft fire right. on a mission that they go on that he also organized. War itself is like one big bureaucratic I mean, total nightmare. war, right? Yeah. It has to be total war. I, mean, I, I think you probably would have felt, as an American, if you were caught up in the American Civil War, you mm-hmm. probably would have felt like you were in the grips of a huge bureaucracy. Yeah. But before... but. Just those two wars, I think Americans like it's this great big beast that's conducting the war and it's taking taking control of every single facet right. of society, and that requires bureaucracy to do that. And then the bureaucracy becomes a nightmare because right. there's all these rules. There have to be rules. There's no other sure. way to run such a huge thing. But it's just like a, it's uh, like like the Leviathan like gone completely wrong. You know, it's yeah. completely yeah. in charge of your life, and it creates these Kafka esque situations uh-huh. that he keeps getting into, where he's just like. Like in trouble for something, like the chaplain gets in trouble for something, can't even figure out what he's in trouble right, for. It doesn't, right. Because somebody signed something to a certain piece of paper. Washington Irving. Yeah, Washington Irving. Yeah. <laughs> I never got that. What's going on with that you, situation? Did you get that? No. I, so, so at the beginning of the, of the book, mm-hmm. Yossarian is, is censoring Enlistedman's right. uh, mail, right? Because right. he's in the hospital faking a, a, a liver, liver problem. Yeah, a liver right. problem. Right. Because, and the whole thing is, and the, the book is written, I mean, the whole thing is zany. I mean, it's clever, it's glib. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's it really is a funny book. Um, so he decides to to censor like all articles in a in a you know so a and right, uh, right. You know, all articles are are censored in, in letters on one. Sounds day. like a Russian wrote the letter. And then and the next day it would be like all verbs, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then everything but the person's name was censored, you know, and uh, and he would sign it. He would sign like the the officer that did this was always Washington Irving. Like that's who he signed as right. the person that did it. And that became a trend. Other people saw that and thought, oh, that's kind of neat. Oh, so it's kind of so, like Kilroy? Kind of like it that. It was like yeah. just people started doing it. Oh, yeah, I, because I didn't ma- gather that other people were doing Major, it. Major Major did it. Okay. He started signing Washington Irving and then uh, Irving okay. Washington. And the meme. All sort of stuff. Sort of, yeah. It's a, you know, 1940s era <laughs> meme. <laughs> but then all of a sudden everybody's worried about, who's this Washington Irving? Why is he signing papers? And blah, blah, blah. So they, they start sending all these... CID men, which is uh, the investigation division or whatever, uh, to investigate who Washington Irving is. But then they started investigating each other. So the CID men started investigating each other because they're suspicious about each other, which actually is a MASH episode. There's like a CID guy in MASH who always, always wore like sunglasses and he was always like, you know, shooting himself to the foot just so that he can go to the hospital and, yeah. you know, see what's going on. And there's like, I have a- anyway. I have like this pastiche of memories about MASH. Like yeah. I used to just watch it sometimes when it was on TV. I never really watched it like in any kind of consecutive order so I understood what was happening. Yeah. And uh, so many people think it's about Vietnam. Korea is the forgotten war, right? right. Like nobody, it didn't land in the American consciousness. Or it did actually land in the American way. Yeah. But historical memory hasn't given yeah, us. People, people you know, really don't, don't think about it. People right. don't talk about it. I'm going to pour some scotch and soda. Scotch um, and soda. Okay. Yeah. Now why are we choosing scotch and soda for this one? Well, uh, there's a there's a great scene in the book where uh, so there's a there's a character named Milo Minderbender. Milo represents business. He's uh, right. he's the specifically business. General Motors, I think. Yeah, he's a he's what's a, good for M and M is good for what's good yeah, for what's, the country. So yeah. he he creates this thing called he calls it the Syndicate. Mm-hmm. So probably splashes, but he creates this thing called the Syndicate, and the Syndicate is essentially just a way to fleece the military right out of money from various kind of enterprises that he has. So he like buys eggs. In some, you know, somewhere in, in Italy, and then right. sells them to the mess kit back then. And he says it's a, it's part of the syndicate, and everybody has a share, mm-hmm. right? So all the soldiers get a share of the the, uh, of the money that he makes. Anyway, so he has all these schemes, all these scams going on. He creates, he, he turns Sicily into the biggest exporter of scotch mm-hmm. in the world by importing scotch into Sicily right. and then reselling it out of Sicily for a huge markup. For a huge markup. Right so. Now. 
course. This is this is not Italian or Sicilian Scotch. This is just good old mm. Johnny Walker red, not the blue, of course. Now there are other countries that make Scotch. Well, they don't call it Scotch. They can't call it Scotch. They right? call they call it single malt. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, Japan, China, India. So yeah, it looks like scotch and soda. It looks like something you would have drunk, had to drink at the officers' club. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. So that's really the only thing that they kind of talk about. They don't talk about. I mean, everybody's drinking, but they don't really talk about what they're drinking. At the no, not really. Think, so it's definitely not a prominent part of the book. Right. But they do mention scotch several times. Well, they mention scotch specifically in that, that one. What kind of scotch thing. do we have? Today? This is just Johnny Walker. Johnny Walker Red Label, which is their base model, like twenty bucks a bottle, something like that. What is the order of the colors. It's, so the next one up is black, right? Next one up is black. Okay. And so they're all blends. So they, they don't make a single malt. Johnny Walker right. doesn't make a single malt. They're all blends. So it's, so it's, it's sort of it's, it's typically the age of age of the scotch they put in it. Okay. Right? Uh, but the, it sort of gets the the expensive bottles of Johnny Walker right. sort of show that like single malt's not necessarily better. Correct. There are high quality blends. Correct. And I sort of had the wrong impression for years that like Blend well, means. I mean, my dad drinks really crappy see, even blended the, scotch. Even, so. even the single malts are blended. I mean, everything's really a blend okay. because you blend barrels into the bottling, right? And so what they'll do, say you take, you take a 10-year-old scotch that okay. says 10 years old on it. That means that the newest uh, barrel that's in there is 10 years old. There might be some that's 15 years old. There might be some that's 18 years old. But it's all of the same malt is what they mean. Yes. It's all type of malt. That's, not not that's even correct. necessarily the same batch. That's correct. Like that, but okay. And so what, what Johnny Walker will do is he might take a, a few different single malts, right. blend them all together, Okay. You know, and create this blend out of them. Where is Johnny Walker? Scotland. Oh, yeah. it is? Yeah, okay. it is in Scotland. But it's not Highlands, right? I don't think so, no. The, the story behind him is he, um, he owns kind of a grocery store, convenience store, whatever you call it in the eighteen hundreds in Scotland. Oh, there's was, a word. Like maybe like a mercantile? That's what we called it. That's what yeah. we called it in the Western United States. Yeah, I don't maybe, think that's yeah. a, another place in the world. But what, over there it'd be a McMercantile or something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh so he uh McIntyre. <laughs> McIntyre. Anyway, so he blended his own and his kid convinced him that he needs to kind of go into business and make scotch instead of just running a grocery store. So it's uh, Kilmarnock, East Ayrshire, which looks to me like the Lowlands. Lowlands. Not, not far from Hadrian's Wall, actually. It's so. a little little peaty. Got a little bit of peat to it. Not too much, but okay. you know, kind of a nice let me, taste. Let me go for a taste. I've had Johnny Walker many times. Isn't that the one we said was in the background in, in a scene in uh, Enter the Dragon? The old yeah, British I, think, guy's <laughs> I think so. And Johnny Walker Blue is, of course, a really expensive one. And it's just a, it's an it's older the, scotch. The single malt that I drink, that just yeah. PD is just not yeah. the word I would use to describe that. Oh, no, Just because I'm so used to no, drinking essentially dirt, like with clumps of yeah. like, well, it's not leaves even, in I it. Mean, see, just because a single malt doesn't mean that. It's too, typically like if you're drinking like an Isla scotch or something like that. Mm. Um, or the Isla That's usually scotch. the ones that oh, I get. Oh, God, those are the Freud. Yeah, those are ones I like. Yeah, those yeah. Are I like to huge, know I'm drinking huge, scotch. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, licking an ashtray. Yes, basically. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so back to the book. Um, I, so you know, one of the big things that I think changed in America that doesn't get as much credit it's a huge change. It's it's like when the Romans changed the way they did their army. Like the the way that people talk about World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Uh -huh. You got these massive conscript armies, mm -hmm. right? Or Air Force, whatever. Well, Air yeah. Force is part of the army. Army Air Force. Army Air Force. Yeah. Uh -huh. But anyway, so you get these massive conscript forces. Um, it's a completely different military yeah. than what we have today, which is all volunteer. Mm -hmm. You do not hear. You don't have these like highly educated guys getting drafted into the military, right. like a guy like me or you ending up in the military, right. is a completely different attitude to people that go into the military on purpose. And that's their career, and that's what they're going to do their whole life. Mm -hmm. And the guys that we've sent to Iraq and Afghanistan, you just don't hear this kind of complaining about being in the military. Right. It's just a complete... There's there's highly educated people yeah. in the military. The officer corps is probably better educated than they were at that time. Yeah. But there's just not the same attitude. You're not a guy that hates the bureaucracy yeah. and doesn't want to be in the military. Right. You did this. You have no problem with doing right. it. Yeah. Some people end up having a bad reaction to the actual combat, but the military itself is, like, I think, pretty well loved mm -hmm. by the people that are in it today. Probably. And yeah. I don't think we've seen the political ramifications of that in this country yet. That is a big difference. Well, let's see. Conscription stopped, I think, 72. Yeah, frankly. that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, so we've had, and we've had a lot of conflicts since then. We've never had anything huge. Well, Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And Afghanistan quite, quite for big. 20 years. Yeah. yeah. But as far as manpower, we haven't sent 
you know, two million people to war. No. Or anything like that. Yeah, I wonder what our total, uh, we didn't even have half a million guys in Iraq like we did in the Persian yeah. Gulf. Persian Gulf War was probably our biggest single deployment like at yeah. one time. That was a, that was it was half run. a million guys over right. there. I mean, it was a lot of troops. It was a lot, yeah. Uh, they did not use that many to invade the country of Iraq. God, no. That's the, the capabilities of the American military in 2003. Yeah. It's amazing that they went in there with like 150,000, I think, right. something like that, and took an entire country. Well, they were so, Iraq was so, they were so finished. I mean, yeah, but if it had been a less capable force, I think we would have seen a lot of yeah, casualties. Well, I, I think they were expecting a, a lot yeah. of casualties, no, and I it think, didn't happen. Yeah. So. But, um, yeah, no, this that's true. This is a completely different type of army, different type yeah. of war. Completely they didn't different. want to be there. Yeah. Well, it's not that... We don't know. have... We're not going to get... I, I would say we're not going to get great literature out of Iraq and Afghanistan for well, that reason. I don't know. I mean... Because we're not sucking people in from outside. How many of the type of people that go in the military today are the type of people that when they retire, that when they get out, they're going to go to New York and write books? Well, a handful, I think... A handful. I think, They'll get no, some people, I think but, I think there are quite a few that are disillusioned because of Yeah, there's like the guy that wrote happened. Jarhead. I can't yeah. think of what his name is. Because of what's um, happened. Well, I have, I have a friend who retired out of, the, out of the Marine Corps as a major. He volunteered the day after 9-11, so 12th of September 2001. Okay. He volunteered. Um, and he was actually prior enlistment, went okay. to college. Right. And then uh, he was graduating, was going to go to law school. 9-11 happened. The next day he went to El Paso and basically applied for OCS. Got yeah. accepted. Got in the Marine Corps. Served, uh, I think, like two or three deployments in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. But he realized that it was not that it was a losing battle, but it's like, what the hell are we doing here? Yeah, you know, type of thing uh, in the first place. And so he's really disillusioned. I wouldn't be surprised. He's he's a brilliant guy. I wouldn't be surprised if he writes something about it. But there's a lot of those guys out there, you know. Yeah. That, especially when you're on the, when you're looking back at it and what you know what we saw this summer mm-hmm. where america's just like we're out you know and uh, yeah. see ya and uh um and just took off i think a lot of vets are like what the hell you know what was 20 years for right because well, you know, we didn't accomplish i think we were thinking that anything. after we'd been there for a year and then after we'd been there for five years yeah. and then eight years everybody just kept saying what are we doing here what's the point of this and they killed bin laden and you're like what are we doing here? right what are we still doing what are we going to accomplish yeah. right there's no military solution where suddenly Afghanistan is going to be able to govern itself. No, like, There's just, it's just not. They, they need to evolve into a society <laughs> that is I, modern, you know, and, yeah, and we I mean, can't make them do that. Or one that functions, you know, yeah. it just doesn't function. For some reason, only the bad people can get their stuff together. Well, it's only the Taliban because they have a purpose. They, because they have a purpose, yeah. exactly. Everybody right. else is just kind of like, well, it'd be nice to just, make money, but well, like otherwise, I'm just going to keep my head. Yeah, down. they're just kind of living their life, you know, yeah. and, and doing what they do. In any case, I mean... This um, is really not about Catch-22. <laughs> it is uh, about war, though. It is and, about and war. And, it, and I can't help it. Like I said, I have a master's degree in military history. I just, if I get going, yeah. stop. But it. Joseph Hiller did did make the point that, you know, he thought World War II was a just war. He thought that what we did in World War II, there were real bad guys. We needed to do it. Yeah. And he was all for it. Yeah. It was Korea, where Korea and then McCarthyism. Those were kind of the two things that he was responding to with this book. Um, yeah. He didn't like the direction that McCarthyism was taking the uh, the um, oath. What were those called? The um, um, loyalty oaths. Loyalty oaths. Yeah. You know, everybody had to sign. Captain Black had everybody sign. So. I mean, frankly, we were on the right side in Vietnam and Korea. No, we were. You know, we I were, mean, the difference between. But I think I think the perception there was like was kind of like, what are we doing there? You know, it's hard to see it when you're. Well, look in, at South Korea today. When you're that's the, what we fought for. Yeah. When you're in you the know? middle, when you're in the middle South of Korea it, today, yeah. you know, of BTS and yeah. Gangnam Style and stuff well, does not exist if the United States doesn't fight. But look fight at Vietnam. Korea. Vietnam's doing doing fantastic. Vietnam's doing fine. Yeah. That's right. But Vietnam, there's so I'm drawing a blank on the guy who's president of Singapore for such a long time. Um, but anyway, he said that the United States had to fight in Vietnam, even though it was it ended up being a failure and the communists took over the whole country. We fought there for so long and so hard that we bought Asia time. To, get to, stuff together. to strengthen itself yeah. enough to resist communism on its own. And that's why, I mean, Asia is the economic that, engine of the planet. That's an interesting know. theory. And I think I think that'll be, you know, it's, it's a theory like any other theory that will be dissected. But, I, but the point is, like, when you're in the middle of it, it it's kind of hard to see. And especially, Absolutely. Well, and it looked like a failure. Think, it looked I think like a lot lost. of I think a lot of World War II vets were looking at Korea like, what the hell is this? I think a lot of World War II vets. Have you ever seen that show uh, Mad Men? No, of course. Okay, so uh, I can't remember his name. The the white haired guy that's that's one of the, the Roger. Pre- Roger. So you know Roger he's a yeah he's a World War Two vet, mm-hmm. 
and the guy that the show is about was was a Korean War vet. Right. And they talk about it, you know, a lot. It's like, well, there's a different war, you know, it was a justified war. You know, that's kind of what Rogers thinks, yeah. you know. And Korea was looked at as like, you know, why are we there? So you know? a lot of that has to do with, like I said before, the historical memory of the conflict. Mm -hmm. Often what happens is um, World War II, like this book, this book especially, what is this book about? This book is not about somebody who invaded France in June 1944, fought across and ended mm -hmm. the war in mm -hmm. just about a year. Mm -hmm. This is about somebody who goes into the Mediterranean theater of operations in like 1941 or 42 mm -hmm. and fights in an, I mean, the attrition level of the U.S. Air Corps, U.S. Army Air Corps, when they're in the bombing campaign, mm -hmm. is the highest of anybody who's engaged in World War II right. on our side, on the American side. It's more like an attrition level campaign that just goes on and on and on. You see people die. People don't put up with that very well. Right. I don't care what kind of campaign you're in or what kind of cause it's yeah. in. It's all the death, and people don't handle that very well. I imagine there was bad morale yeah. in the U.S. Army Air Corps, and that's what this is about. It doesn't matter that you're fighting the Nazis. What matters is that you're probably going to die. Yeah, People don't like that. They don't well, care what they're fighting yes, for. Right. You know? I had to laugh every time I, I read it, but he's like, Yasserian, you're crazy. You think people are out to kill you? People are out to kill yeah, you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> every time I go up, they're shooting at me. Yeah. How do you know that people are out to kill you? Because they're always shooting at me. Right. You know, right. stuff like that. I mean, it, you know. But the historical memory of the Korean War is three years bogged down fighting the Chinese yeah. across trenches, essentially like World War One. Right. You know, we lost about 50,000, 60,000 killed. We killed something like a million Chinese in the process of losing that many people, which right. is, you know, what would their memory of the war be like if sure. they should have free society? Pretty bad, probably. Yeah. Same thing in Vietnam. You know, guys are just engaged for years and year after year after year. People just don't, you just don't react very well to that. that and that's the memory of those wars. Whereas the war, the, the World War II memory is invade France, fight for a year, and you're done. Sure. It's a good war. It's a clean yeah. war. It bogged down a couple of times. Mm -hmm. People have bad, bad memories of that, but it doesn't get, it's not remembered the same mm -hmm. way. Have you ever, have you ever watched the movie? Uh, no. Movie? No. It's actually pretty good. You know, they had to cut out so much of it to make it two hours, right? So there's a show coming out apparently. Apparently, yes. Uh, like a Netflix show or yeah, something like a, a series. four issue. Yeah, series yeah, I don't know if it's like going to be like an ongoing series. We'll but. see how that one. But I think uh, you know the movie is worth watching. Uh, mm -hmm. Alan Arkin plays Usarian. It's a good, oh, okay. good choice. I like him. Yeah, he's good. Um, they have uh, John Voight as Milo, which again is a great really? choice. What year was that made? So it must have been made. 68, something like that. Oh, okay. That's pretty yeah. early for John Boyd, right? That's right around the time he Yeah, gets, so he was uh, really young. Uh, Urban Cowboy, yeah, Midnight Cowboy? Like no, it's not. Urban Cowboy is John Travolta. Yeah, Midnight Cowboy. Midnight Cowboy. Exactly. It's John Boyd yeah, doesn't happen, right? But that was actually shot at a place called San Carlos, Mexico. And I, I didn't know okay. anything about it. And uh, my wife and I honeymooned there after, oh, after we got married. Where and, is that? On the Pacific Coast somewhere? No, it's in the, the Sea of Cortez, the the, the oh, yeah, that's basically. what I meant. Yeah. On, on this right. side of it. Okay. And um, it's about six or seven hours south of Tucson. And it's a tiny little tiny little fishing village when we were there. It's kind of blown up since then. Yeah, I imagine but so. somebody told us, oh, the ruins of uh, of the movie set Catch-22 are out there. So we go out there, and it looks like these, like these old stone ruins from mm -hmm. like you know, ages, right. hundreds of years right, ago. Right. But it, it was just the movie set. And it was all blown up during the bombing run. Uh, that was like the last scene they filmed because they needed everything before they bombed it, right? So then we had to go home and watch it. But the whole thing, I mean, that's like the, the ocean, the part with um, Kid Samson. I mean, all of it was shot at San Carlos right there. Beautiful place. Yeah. Uh, how about uh, how the uh, the structure of the story? What did you think of that? I hated it. Why don't you, can you I tell? I hate tell, the, the non-linearity. Tell, tell listeners how it was structured. It's structured as in the first two-thirds of the book, especially, jump around and you're constantly, I don't know if you'd call it stream of consciousness, but it's a little bit like that because you're like hearing about an event that has happened and then it's happening and then you're, I just found it really hard to follow yeah. what was going on in the book because it was jumping all over the place like that. And I was having difficulty because I found the repetitive dialogue irritating. <laughs> so I wasn't getting the, like if I'm going to follow a nonlinear narrative, I have to really love what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to have the attention to detail to start trying to remember what's happening and stuff like that, I have to love what I'm reading. And I was just annoyed. It was like reading Hitchhikers again. Mm -hmm. It was like, I, you know, you're just like, I'm sure this was funny in 1961, but it's driving me crazy right now. The people keep repeating those lines of dialogue like over and over again. Like There'll be like a two-page sequence of somebody repeating the same thing. Right. And I'm like, I really don't have patience <laughs> for this. Like, this is driving me crazy. You just wanted to get through it. Yes. So I was having a lot of trouble with the yeah. nonlinear 
structure. So the, the, when it would settle down, mm -hmm. I enjoyed the book. If it had just been written linearly, I would have enjoyed the book right. way more. I would mean, it, do you think it would have been a successful? Because it's a I, big experiment. I, I can't now. fault it. Although it wasn't terribly successful stateside when True. it came out. True. But um, over the years, over the years, it, it, it was kind of like a cult hit yeah. as a novel. Of course, um, England got it. Right it was bat. exactly like what happened with yeah. uh, with Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds yeah. It yeah. went over to England and was immediately yeah. successful. Best I don't yeah. know why. Here it sold like 10,000 copies. Probably because it made Americans look like idiots. If Maybe. you want to sell a book in England, well, it's also quite, as an American, also quite, go over there and talk about how stupid Americans are. <laughs> True. They love That's that. a good They'll point. Eat that up. It's also quite highbrow, kind of like Pet Sounds. It's esoteric. You know, it's, it's an experimental type of writing that he's doing. I mean, the experimental style nature, it's highbrow. Did, it's not really When did On the Road come out? That was like 50, uh, 58, 50, 59, like that. something like that. Yeah. That was stream of consciousness almost. In parts, know. in parts. Um, but my favorite, I've lo always loved that book. My favorite parts of the book are actually when he settles down and writes like an actual proper passage. Mm -hmm. like, like, that's where I enjoy the book. Do you know how, how he wrote But that? I have a lot of buy. Do you know how Kerouac wrote that book, by the way? Uh, on was, a napkin it, or something? No, it was a scroll. It was one long yeah, there scroll. You go. There you go. So he's just at his typewriter and it just keeps going and going. And well, going. that's not, I'm definitely going to pick that one at some yeah. point because that's one of my favorite. Well, I don't know if it'll still be my, one of my favorite books yeah. if I read it again, but the road tripping narrative and seeing America and stuff yeah. like that just inspired me so much as right. a kid that I bought into the book and was willing to put up with the stream of consciousness. Sure. Okay. This one was not getting the same level of buy-in. Okay. My opinion of the book was like a two out of ten for about two-thirds of the novel, and it picked up considerably towards the end mm -hmm. uh, when everything starts to sort of fall apart for him mm -hmm. and, and it gets really dark and violent. And so yeah. this trip to Rome especially mm -hmm. towards right. the end. That's where I was like, okay, I like this book a lot more. I've seen MASH. I've heard people whine about how bad it is to be in a war and stuff like that. Like, I've I, heard no. people whine. I, I get it. I get I it. It's the bad. The condescending you know? dismissal in your, in your, in your like, statement. It just doesn't strike me as all that new. I think for a lot of people then, it would have... I think it. I think a lot of it would have been what we're talking about. If you're in the era of the Korean War in Vietnam, it probably would have been heartening to hear your parents' generation complaining about World War II. Yeah. And not having that narrative, we're the greatest generation, and we fought this war, and we kicked the Nazis' butts, and you're losing to the communists, right. a bunch of losers, you know. Yeah, but I think, and I, I think, think if you'd heard somebody of that generation saying, "No, this war was horrible too," but I think, you know? I think the complaint though is, is it is on the side of the men. It's not like, oh, you're losing this war and everything else. Your certain wants to get out because he doesn't, he doesn't want to die, right? And so it's it's senseless for these people to get killed. I mean, that's the point. You look at. By the time it's over, almost everybody in a squadron is dead that you were right, introduced right. to, right? Which is, which is except what happens. For, except for the real a-holes. Alfie's still right. alive. Milo's still alive. Short, you know, Scheisskopf, which I love that name. Yeah, Scheisskopf is still alive. Um, you know, it's the first German words I ever learned. <laughs> I know, me too, right? reason my friend told me that. Schweinhund is a good one, too. Schweinhund. Yeah, uh, but uh, I love that pig dog. You pig dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's but, insulting uh, in English. I guess it, it doesn't is. have the same ring, but it it's, it's insulting. Yeah. In English. You know, it's senseless, and they all die in stupid ways. Like if they weren't there, right? Hungry Joe, <laughs> cat suffocates Hungry Joe. Do you read yeah. a uh, or, or watch the show The Pacific, the Eugene Sledge yeah, yeah. memoir? Uh -huh. So it's kind of the same thing, right? He's that in was, the Marines, and he's engaged in the Pacific for like three years. Yeah, and sees people just that die. One, so the they're replacing guys and bringing in new that guys. That was based into, on multiple books. Though. Right. It's pillow, it's, uh, how, it's Eugene Sledge, and then it's. Uh, I can't remember the other guy, but there's you're right. Yeah, it's two memoirs. Yeah, but it's the same kind of thing because they're engaged for the entire war. There's that's the only two places in World War II where Americans fought for the whole war. The entire thing is yeah. they were intensely engaged in Italy and the Mediterranean, and they were intensely engaged in the Pacific. Right. And you get bad people talk badly about those wars. Yeah, you don't get that from the Northwest. Well, you don't. You don't. You, know, you don't get a lot of Europe, the, the uh, you don't get a lot of the heroism that you do from Normandy. I mean, like you said, right. So a lot of people, World War II is invade Normandy, march to Berlin, right? right? And there's right. this this brief lull in between, you know, is the Battle of the Balls, and, and but we yeah, but, there's a big slowdown in the Hurricane Forest, and you hear some bad stuff, through, bad stuff echoes like that. of that, but yeah, yeah it's, it's but just I mean, one short other than, campaign. Yeah. I think John Wayne was John Wayne made like three or four movies about the Pacific. Uh, I think he he made uh, Iwo Jima. He played uh, Sergeant Stryker mm -hmm. um, in one of them. Yeah. but you're right, you don't see a lot of that heroism at all. Uh, well, you I do. You, you absolutely do. The I reality think, is, the well, Marines were incredibly heroic. Absolutely. In those ways, but I think closer, closer. But they don't have the that idea though. of it. Yeah, I don't know. Because if all your friends are dying, you're just well, not going to be. What's funny is know? throughout the book, the threat was always, "We're going to ship you to the Solomon Islands. We'll ship you to right. the Pacific. Right. If you don't like it here. Exactly. It's going to get worse. Well, because know? because 
A, you've got intense combat, the same as you have there, but you also, the jungle is killing Mosquitoes people. Mosquitoes. You know, I mean, it's terrible. Uh, there's a whole book I read about the, um, it's essentially about the land campaign in the Pacific, mm -hmm. which is mostly in New Guinea. Mm -hmm. And it was all about the Australian and American infantry fighting there, and just what a nightmare, and the Japanese as well, and just what a nightmare it was. Yeah. Like, just absolute nightmare fighting in that campaign. Like, yeah. It's back to what it was like in, the, in World War II, uh, sorry, in the Civil War, right. where most of the troops are dying of disease. Right. You know, if they're not dying of disease, they're drowning in, yeah. in, in neck-deep mud and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it's just a terrible place to fight a war. I just, um, I got back, I was, last weekend, I was in Texas, um, mm -hmm. visiting a, a family friend. This guy is 99 years old. Um, just turned 99. He was uh, part of the, gosh, I can't remember, 33rd Infantry Battalion. He was assigned to a, a 155 millimeter howitzer gun. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was drafted in like 42 and sent to the Pacific. So he was in Guam and then he went to Saipan. And then after Saipan, he was actually part of the invasion fleet for uh, Japan. And his battalion was the first to land on Japan and occupy it after they surrendered. Um, oh, just some just some amazing stories from this guy. I mean, just you know, just his observations. I remember a story that really stuck in my head. There was a guy, in the same sort of thing. The guys that come in and occupy Japan, huh? like right, but they landed at Hiroshima. Yeah, and came into the port, and he said there was one little boy walking around the port, just like a homeless, Wondering, you know, orphan kid. Yeah. Obviously, the next day they woke up and they never saw another single living person in like. In the, in the city of Hiroshima, yeah. like so, this kid was just I, I just I cannot get that image out of my head. Yeah, like a little kid wandering around a place like that, God, and then probably died. Imagine, but yeah. I mean, just the like, whole the whole world was on fire. Yeah, I mean, everything yeah. was on fire. Yeah, it's pretty. The picture that Heller paints at the very end of it, like you said, like chapter thirty nine or whatever, uh, what was it? The Eternal City was the name of the chapter, and they talked about yeah, Rome, and, which is Rome, right? And that was the first time that you really saw the carnage of war, like the whole. Town and the whole city is completely destroyed from bombing. Everything's bombed out, and then people turn into savages. They're beating each other and, and you know raping and stealing from each other and everything else. Right. And that one line in there that it must have been, you know, traveling through the city and looking at all of this going on, must have been what it was like, what it felt like to be Jesus walking through the world. And he said a leper would have been a welcome sight because yeah. a leper he can help. You don't remember that line? No. It was uh, it was towards the end of it was before the whole Alfie uh, situation. Murdering the yeah, girl. Murdering yeah. the girl. Right. He's walking through and he's seeing like this this little kid getting beaten. Oh yeah. By a yeah, grown yeah. man. Yeah, and, I remember and, that. and he sees uh, somebody else getting beaten. He sees a woman. Well, each block repeats itself. Essentially, yeah. you have the same kind of violence. A woman gets like, robbed. And, yeah. And it's just over and over and over. Right. And and it's dark and everything's like just terrible. And, and he says that this must be what it felt like for Jesus walking through the world. I mean, you're right. looking at all this stuff going on. Because well, like, you can't fix the moral rot. You can only fix like the and as we said, physical. A leper you know? would have been yeah. a welcome sight because right. I, I can heal the leper. I think that's the mastery of this book mm -hmm. is it's glib, 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 glib. And then the very end just smacks you in the face like a baseball bat, right? Because everything, everything that happened up to that point was good humor. But then everybody dies. Right. There's the episode of Alfie, you know, where he. Well, there's a couple I, of. It's like there's a couple oh of pretty violent episodes that seem almost kind of. Re there's the there's the bit where, kid, Samson. kid Samson gets killed. That's towards the end. Which kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. Like I was like, oh, that's geez. sort of that's sort of and the then, start. And then when the uh, the pilot kills is himself, Mc, McWatt, McWatt kills yeah. himself, and like that that whole part, I was just that's where it got realer. That's and I enjoyed the book way more when it was real. But I think like that's because of everything before it. I mean, he he, yeah. he sets it up. I mean, literally like thirty seven chapters of lulling you. There's you know it's glib humor, it's stupid punchlines, it's dumb dialogue. Right. Or, so I know you know they are out to kill me. You know every every time right. I go to an airplane, right. they're trying to shoot at me, and um, all their stuff. And so it's kind of like, it's fun, or, or it's glib, or whatever, mm -hmm. but then all of a sudden it becomes real serious, real fast, within three chapters. And at the end of it, you're like, holy cow, because it's just a whirlwind at the end. I had a couple of thoughts about the writing process of it. It must have been so difficult to write this book. I mean, it took them seven years. It's the kind of thing it. you'd have to, and this is what you I have say. You'd have to plot it out, right? You'd have to plot it out, yeah. like mechanically, right? Because otherwise you could, you'd lose all the threads. Because and what, that's my problem with reading it for the first half was that if I'm not like really into it, uh, it's super hard to get the to force myself. It is. Well, because as a reader, you he'll, need to he'll be give you the punchline of a joke, 
And then the setup will come two, two chapters later when you find out what happened. Because yeah. they'll say, like that time when, when uh, can I say the word, Nately's uh, prostitute. Uh, when Nately's prostitute. The book was banned in several jurisdictions, yeah. because, like in school jurisdictions, because of that word. Yeah. So, so uh, like the time, you know, when Nately's prostitute was hitting him over the head with a shoe. And then yeah. it just goes on, and you're like, what? Three chapters later, it tells you the story about Nately's prostitute hitting right. him over the head with a shoe or something like right. that. And you're like, oh, okay. And it does that. Every chapter. So every chapter has the setup for a punchline that came right. well in advance. So it, it uh, but even the final chapters sort of do that too. You finally understand because he talks about Snowden. That's he know, talks about Snowden all through the book, right? That keeps coming yeah. up because that happened early. That's yeah. one of the bad things that happens early on right. in his experience. And in the nonlinear portions of the narrative, he keeps referring to it. Mm -hmm. And you get a kind of hint of how bad it was. And then there's a very graphic description of what then happened finally, towards the end of the book. He, yeah, he, then he reveals what pretty, happened. And that's that's yeah. pretty. Uh, that's a pretty powerful bit. I mean, I def that's they, they talk about him head. like. Uh, Sounds like he bled to death. From well, he did. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, everything that was inside of him was outside of him. But right. a little, you get a little bit more of a reveal as it goes through, like that time when he had to wash Snowden off him. Right. He came out completely naked. Yeah. So he could wash Snowden off off of him and, and mm -hmm. refused to wear clothes after that. Yeah, like a couple big shocks. Like yeah. That. Yeah. And the reveals, like, but again, that's like the last three chapters where all of that comes together, happens, and you're like, holy cow, you know, like that that end of it. The end of it really shows you how senseless it all is, right? I think the first book that's really like this, mm -hmm. like the one that really like, or I don't know, maybe that's, I'm, maybe I'm talking out of my out of my butt here, but All Quiet on the Western Front is really like the first one like right. this. Because even like the Red Badge of Courage about the Civil War right. is kind of about like a man's struggle against himself and finding courage, whereas yeah. that one is just like, this is a bad situation and this is what it's like yeah. to see everybody die. There's a lot of that in this book. All Quiet on the Western Front is very similar. It's all about his unit and everybody getting killed one by one, the yeah. randomness of the deaths and the uselessness of it, the futility of it, even though this book is not really making the claim that like World War II was not worth fighting. I mean, right. he, they actually they actually make that distinction. I can't remember who he's talking to. I can't keep any of the officers straight, by the way. <laughs> Colonel Cathcart, Colonel Korn, yeah. General Scott. I remember Danby. him because he's the one obsessed with yeah. marching. and so right. like Danby. I don't remember all these. It's very hard to keep all the characters straight. But he talks about how this is not like World War One, where it's not a big deal if we lose to the Germans. If you lose to the Germans this time, they're out to kill everybody, and it's a bad thing. And he doesn't even argue. Even these, all these anti-war people don't even argue with that. They're like, yeah, right. that's right. That's really not what we're talking that was about. A funny, that was a funny you part know? about Milo. And, I, and, and that, that, you know, when, when Milo decides, you know, the, the Russians or the Germans, everybody but the Russians, he won't mm -hmm. work with communists. Right. You now, because he represents business, right? It's so funny. And uh, everybody... Everybody's in the, in the syndicate, including the Germans, mm -hmm. you know. And yeah. so he gets stuff from the Germans. You know, they pay him to bomb his own place. And he all sells them ball bearings, so, yeah. which, is a, which is a little veiled reference to the yes. fact that the American Air Campaign was specifically designed to take out their ball bearing factories. Well, they and, thought if and, they could just get one part of their industry right. and destroy it, that they could win the war. Well, there is a, and there is a, a lot of controversy uh, afterwards because Ford had a plant in Germany uh, and okay. France. And the... Uh, the trucks that were rolling out for the uh, the German army mm -hmm. were Fords. There's a scene, and it's really funny looking back, and, and actually, I think GMC too. Um, but there's a scene in um, Band of Brothers okay. at the very end when one of the guys is losing it, and he sees all the Germans that have surrendered. And he's all, "That's right." He's all, uh, "He's like, say hello to Ford and GM and all this other stuff." And, I, and after reading this other book, it's called. Um, Arsenal of Democracy yeah, by AJ Bain. Yeah. You find out that, wait, a lot of their trucks were Ford and GM and stuff too, right? Yeah, but it, it shows you that the genius of a company like GM or Ford in those days, and they're not all that genius today, but in those days, the genius of it was not really so much the actual physical plant, right? With Germans running the plant, you know, in occupied yeah. France and stuff like that, it's not operating as efficiently. It, right. it really well, is the way that they were running things. Yeah. Like the, 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 sort of like the way Walmart does things, like the the... The comprehensive logistics of the right. whole company—that's the—that's the genius of it. Well, um, and and and, I, and it should be fair to Ford and GM and stuff. You know, essentially the Germans took over their plant. Yeah, it's not like, like they were building trucks for like the Germans, that, right? right? Exactly. I mean, that's not—that's not. Yeah, uh, no. but they were stamped Ford and GM, yeah, which is, yeah, that is fairly funny. funny. The Russians were using tons of their stuff too. I mean, they were yeah. bringing a bunch of stuff over the over the northern route, right? Them a whole bunch of trucks. I think most were, of the trucks in the that Russian was different. Army. I mean, the Russians were using. We were giving them. 
you know, uh, Jeeps and, and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. So uh, I think we talked about the P-34s at one time. That was an American design, I think. British. Oh, British design. And um, just the chassis. And But again, it's allied. Given the it sloped to the, armor. To the, given it to the, the sloped Russian. armor was a Russian innovation. You got to give credit where credit's due. Okay. Somebody, okay. somebody That's did a good job brain. there. All right. <laughs> anyway, so what, what did you think of Yosarian as a character? I think of Yosarian as a character. Who did you find more sympathetic, Yosarian or the chaplain? I kind of gravitated towards the chaplain myself. Well, you felt bad for the chaplain, but he was—he was such a naive, innocent, stupid person, though. You know. Yeah, in a way. And he, and he, and he, in a way. He, but he found his courage at the end. You know, I—I I thought of that as almost like a Wizard of Oz moment at the very end, where the cowardly lion finds his courage. You know, type of thing. Because uh -huh. yeah. that was him, and I saw him, kind of representative of the cowardly lion. Like he—he he could. You know, he had uh, that uh, corporal that was always a jerk to him and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. He could have put him in his place whenever he wanted, but he was afraid of him. He was afraid of the corporal. Right. The chaplain or the captain, I think. But he just, he was afraid of everything. It wasn't until the very end that Eusarian basically helps him be brave. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to fight him, you know, myself and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And um, I didn't really understand the ending, what happened there, where he suddenly decided he was going to go AWOL and walk across... Europe or row, something? No, he was going to row to Oh, Sweden. he was going to try the same he thing the other guy did? Yeah, row? Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, the guy's name is Orr. Orr, exactly. How did I not catch that? <laughs> right. See, this, is, this happens to me all the time. When there's a when there's a sound joke in a uh -huh. name, I don't get it. Because that's not how I read. Off. I don't, I don't yeah. read and hear things in yeah. my head. That's funny. No, so, yeah. It's so or, obvious. Or rode to yeah. Sweden. Yeah. Um, well, that was the only way out for him. Right. If he had stayed, he'd be court-martialed. Yeah. Or he could take the deal and look like a schmuck. You know, and basically make a deal with the devil. It's actually it's kind of a, a to be or not to be moment. I mean, that's your way out, right? And in fact, you know, this is another this is another throwback to Mash. Do you know what the theme song for Mash is? Suicide is painless. Suicide is painless. Have you ever heard the words? No. It, that's what it says. Like suicide is painless. It brings on many changes, and I can take it or leave it if I if I please. Like that's the one thing you've got control over, because it's talking about you're in the army. They own you. Right, you are a piece of their equipment. It's like, well, I can always end it. Like, yeah. I have control over it because I can just end it if I want to. Right. So at the very end, that's his to be or not to be moment. Like, which, what do I take? What do I do? I'm just going to leave, which right. is almost like kind of a figurative form of suicide. You just split. I mean, right? the odds are if you try to row to Sweden from Italy, you're going to die. <laughs> well, come on, with all, everything they, they had, yeah. apparently, they have tea. Uh, yeah. He started going down yeah. the list of everything they had. Those boats. I'm like, that's not bad. They had tea. They had cakes. They had, uh, they had, they had bait. You know, yeah, you couldn't. I don't. If you tried to row from Italy to the coast of Spain, you'd oh, die. it's totally ridiculous. <laughs> <I> mean, <it's, laughs> you go through the Straits of Gibraltar. Yeah, I mean, it's no, like, you, you got to go all the way up and around. The thing about Orr was Orr like crashed somewhere outside of France or something, and and was able to. Go up. I mean, it would make a little bit more sense, I guess. I guess so, yeah. I thought they were implying that he had rode all the way from Italy, but I don't know. He was practicing to crash in the water so that he could. Right, he I remember escape, that part. So. Yeah, yeah. So I asked earlier, I've saying this before, but like, what's the big enemy? Is it war or is it bureaucracy, right? Because there's a lot of. Some of the parts that I thought were. I don't know, I had trouble with the humor, but there's. there's some of the phrases they get repeated, like people go, they go to the doctor. There's a part towards the end where some of the, a bunch of guys go to the doctors and they're like, so they went in there and they had their gums painted purple, <laughs> gums painted purple. and they were given a laxative and, and to throw into the bushes. Yeah, and their toes painted purple. Right. And given a laxative. Yeah. yeah. I was just there's so much inertia in the bureaucracy. Right. It's just all about like the bureaucracy is going to do well, what the this, bureaucracy yeah. is going to well, do. Well, it's like the marching. Right. We, we march. Right. Exactly. What do we do. We yeah. march. You know, yeah. we have to have marches. Right, we march. Yeah, yeah. When they put Shyskov in charge, yeah. made him a general, then everybody's going to have to. <laughs> everybody march. has to march now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. pretty ridiculous. Right. Well, the whole thing was. It was pretty ridiculous. Um, I thought one of the best metaphors in that way in the book was when, at the end, when, uh, who's the guy that murders the girl? Is it Arfi? Arfi, yeah. Yeah, when he murders the girl, and then um, Yosirian's like, oh, you're in so much trouble. Yeah, like, you're gonna the get... cops are here And right then now. they go out on the street, and the cops arrest him. Yeah, arrest him. Pass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they walk right into the room and yeah. arrest I thought, that was, yeah. I thought that was pretty effective. I right. thought that was a pretty effective uh, gag. I just, I would have thought it was funnier if, I was just, if it had just been linear. I... <laughs> I just have to Did love you don't something. like Pulp Fiction? So I was actually going to talk about that because the first time I watched Pulp Fiction, I had seen Reservoir Dogs, uh -huh. and I just loved it. Like, it hit me like a thunderbolt. Like, the way it was done flashbacks was different than anything like I'd ever seen. So I was 100% bought in. There were flashbacks. But then when I watched Pulp Fiction, I was like, okay, I've seen the way this guy does a movie before. Yeah. This is not hitting me the same way. 
So I just kind of watched it and it left me kind of flat. And then I, after repeat watchings, I grew to really love that movie. I mean, just, you know, really love that movie. But I think I just was a little bored the first time I watched it. So I wasn't really getting into the like nonlinear narrative, mm-hmm. figuring out how it strings together. Right. Um, I enjoyed some of the sequences of the film, but it just kind of left me flat until I watched it a couple of times and really got to like it more. Yeah. Yeah. It got more buy-in for me over the years as I watched it. And for me, I have to be engaged. Maybe I'm a little ADD. I think my mind just kind of wanders if I don't love something. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. I was reading Marvel comics the other day, and I was thinking, like, why don't I ever have to make an effort to remember things about comics? Mm-hmm. Well, it's just because I have so much buy-in. I'm just enjoying it. Yeah. So it's like I don't, I don't have to take notes about characters. Yeah, they're fairly mindless, right? Like Dale Whitman yeah. is, is, uh, is the Black Knight, and he carries the Ebony Blade. I remember that the first time I read it. Mm. Why? I don't have to study that, but it's just more interest, attention. Ladies and gentlemen, and... we are trusting this person with uh, judging masters, yeah. or judging classes, exactly. rather. So. Exactly. Are we at the time we should talk about the biggest surprise? Yeah, or let's do it. Do we need to, to bloviate some more before we get to that? <laughs> no. No blow. This is a no blow gate. No blow gate zone. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> what was your biggest surprise? You, you oh, uh, had you read this before? Let, let's pause. Let's put yeah. a pin in. I, no, I, have I, you read the book? I before? had never read it before. Okay, I so had, I had watched the movie, mm-hmm. and uh, I bought this, you know, first edition, ninth printing, first edition. Yeah, like at a yard sale or something, and okay. uh, I've had it on my shelf ever since. Never read it. Oh, okay. Oh, that's great. That's and, always a good feeling to finally read something. But it's, the, you know, it, I knew it was a classic. Well, I knew it was supposedly a classic yep. because if you go out to our Barnes & Noble here in Las Cruces, New Mexico. There's a painting of it on the There's a painting wall, right? on yeah, the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's one of those yep. that they hold up. There's mm-hmm. also the natural Tree Grows of Brooklyn, which we did. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, one book up there that I don't know. And I, I remember walking past it at the mall the other day. I, and I think, was like, I, what? It's the last one on the right. Yeah, it's past I, the natural. I, yes. There's one on the right. And I was walking past it. I was like. What is that? Is there a Brave New World? Is that one up there? It might be. It might be. Yeah, there's. Um, But but I actually went. There's one in the cafe uh under the volcano by Malcolm Lowry. Okay. I actually went and got that and read it a couple years ago. Okay. So I was like, I don't know that. What is that book? But it's about Mexico. It's actually pretty good. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I I had not. I watched the movie. The movie was funny. Alan Arkin was funny. I I count that as. That's kind of an intersection with the text. You've seen the movie. It was contextual. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. So my experience of this book was I, when I was in high school, had a girlfriend who was. I don't want to say like necessarily incredibly smarter than me, but she was just way more accomplished. A lot, like your, a lot like your wife. My wife is a lot more accomplished yeah. than I am. That's okay. true. So yeah, I mean, it's it's it was kind of the same thing. So I was trying to sort of keep up with what she was mm-hmm. reading and stuff like that. And she was taking this AP English class and she was reading Catch-22. And I was like, I remember I went on this short trip and I was like, I'm going to read Catch-22 over the course of this trip. Uh-huh. And I kind of like speed read it. Like I got, I read the okay. whole thing over the course of like a 24 hour period or Holy something God. like that. And I was like, all right, I read that. I didn't like that. And so I was thinking like afterwards, I was like, you know, I didn't really give that book a fair shake. I didn't like it because I read it too fast. Uh-huh. And then I went back and I was reading it now and I'm like, okay, like, especially again, like the first two thirds of the book, I'm like, the reason the book sounded to me like a bunch of gibberish is because it kind of, you know, there's there's a reason for that. Yeah. That's not something you can speed read. No, you got to closely you know? read it. It's no, all absolutely. over the place. Yeah. It's hard to follow. Well, that's the point. Uh, like if you, I you... had sped read, you know, I mean, I did the same thing with um, All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. Mm-hmm. She was reading that one also. I read that. I got it. You know, it's fine. I read it over the course of a short period yeah. to keep up with this girl. And, like, I understood what happened in that book because it was a pretty straightforward narrative. This one was just, I, as reading it more carefully this time, I was like, okay, it's still kind of hard to follow. Right. It's not entirely the speed reading situation. Sure. Like it was, you know, it's a difficult book to follow. So I thought I hated the book, and I read, read it again. Two-thirds of the way through the book, I was still thinking like, yeah, no, I, 20, 25 years later, I still hate this book. You know? <laughs> but my opinion of it started to shift a great deal uh-huh. in the second half, and we'll reserve my conclusions about that yeah. for the vote on the classicity of the book. But my biggest surprise mm-hmm. is pretty, uh, it's pretty trivial. But kind of interesting. He mentions early in the book, somebody's plane goes down. And he's talking about helicopters flying all over the place. Mm-hmm. And my first thought, I was like, it's an error. Mm-hmm. He's like conflating two wars. There's no helicopters in World War II. Yeah, I so I went that. and I went and I went and looked it up on Wikipedia and like online and stuff like that. Apparently, there were search and rescue helicopters wow. in World War II. Huh. They were those little things from the beginning of MASH. Uh-huh. You know, the little like gyro. Yeah, yeah. Little things like that, but there were helicopters during the Second that. World War. I did not know that. 
Yeah, and, and I'm talking it. about as somebody that knows a little bit about World mm -hmm. War II. Yeah. But somehow I had never come across that. That's, that's your biggest surprise. That's my biggest surprise. Wow. That there were helicopters in World War II. That's, okay. Otherwise, the book was what I thought it was going to be. My biggest surprise, you know, a little more substantial surprise is, is that my opinion of the book changed a great deal towards the second half of the yeah. book. The first half, I was like, yeah, this is what I remember. It's a million characters. I don't care about any of them, you know. <laughs> They're just names. They're just like farcical caricatures of people instead right. of characters. You know? Right. Scheisskopf is like, Scheisskopf. it's just a caricature. Yeah. You know, the name is a caricature. Sure. Everything uh -huh. about it. And I just don't have a lot of patience for that. Okay. You know, I'm like, okay. All right. And the second half of the book started to change for me because it picks up a little more narrative. I get what's going on mm -hmm. more. I start to care. Rosarian gives leaves an emotional imprint, you know, like especially that Rome experience we talked about. Yeah. You start to you start to understand these are real people. Right. I don't have a lot of sympathy for caricatures. I don't want to read something about. I want to read about real people with real feelings and things like that. It's mm -hmm. the same thing we were saying about Hitchhiker. It's boring. Yeah. To to, to read a caricature. A two dimensional. You know, character. two dimensional yeah. character right. that you know, like it's just there for a, for a gag. Yeah. You know, which is not quite what this. That's not what this is. That's um, what Hitchhikers is, in, yeah. in, in hindsight. Characters are just there for a bunch of gags. Sure. There's a few philosophical questions that are a little more important and interesting. But anyway, so I'm segueing my biggest surprise into talking about whether I would vote for it as a classic, which is the second half buoys the book a lot more mm -hmm. for me. And it's the, in the first half, I was like, I, I'm going to have to vote this down. Oh, yeah. I, this is just not good. Um, I don't know. If we, give me some of your closing arguments. Well, I haven't said my biggest surprise, which was... Oh, right. Uh, yeah. oh, I, thought you, I thought we started with your biggest surprise. I'm sorry. Well, we did, but then we moved to your biggest surprise. And then I bloviated. <laughs> Before I even had The problem is all that bloviation. <laughs> but uh, no, my you know my biggest surprise was was simply like probably the last three chapters of the book. What happens to Snowden? Mm -hmm. The reveal for Snowden. Right. Um, the whole scene for Rome. I think it just, was a... Re I thought they sort of told us what happened to him. It just was in more detail. Well, they, 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 they said he froze to death. Kid froze to death. But he also had... So you know how the, the surprise is he's working on that one wound yeah. and then discovers that there's a gigantic yeah. one? He says that earlier in the book because that didn't surprise well, me. No, I he, was like, he mentioned that but, he had discovered he, a second bigger wound. Right, that was on, right but they, they, they just pass by it. And it's yeah. so, it's so, yeah, yeah, it's right, so benign right, that you right. say, oh, okay, whatever. Yeah. But they say the poor kid that froze to death. That's how they put it. Yeah. And the reason yeah. they said that was he kept saying, I'm so cold, right. I'm so cold. Right. Please well, you wouldn't be if right? it was a giant Right. Villain. I mean, just that scene, God, that was so powerful. Because the Osarian, like, why is he even there with Snowden? Why is he there? The Osarian is... He's comes, the, you, the navigator? He's the bombardier. Okay. Oh, he's the bombardier. So okay. so he's in the very so nose the of the plane. the guy that actually pulls the trigger yeah, on He's the, the very, very nose of the plane, and he has to go back to the tail of the plane, because the tail gunner passed out. Right. And uh, they got hit by, hit by shrapnel, you know, the flak. Right. And um, and uh, Dobbs is like losing it. It's like somebody, somebody, you know, somebody helped uh, mm -hmm. whatever. But up to that point, you know, Yasserian comes across as this crude, crass. He totally apathetic. Really, only cares about his own like survival, right? And then he goes up to him, and he's like, he's he's helping him out of a sense of duty. You know, helping out Snowden, he's doing everything that he's supposed to do, and he's like, there, 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 you're going to be fine, there, there, you're going right, to be fine. Right. And then he discovers it, what happened to Snowden, and how terrible it is. And then he is, then his, like, his whole countenance changes. You know, now suddenly he realizes what's going to happen to him. He suddenly transforms from this crass, lewd, you know, apathetic person into a human. I mean, that that pivots him immediately. Not and, to get too personal here, uh -huh. but watching someone die will do that to you. Right? That, that will definitely and, do that and, to you. You and, are a different person once you go through that. Suddenly, suddenly he's a human now, mm -hmm. right? Because there, we didn't have a lot of love for Yossarian before that. I mean, Yossarian was, a, he was, he was all those things I just said, and he proved it to you in a multiple number of ways. He no, would, he's like a comic character. Yeah, he would always go out of his way to, to help himself, to serve himself, to protect himself, right? Uh-huh. But at that moment, you're like, well, he starts trying to to save the little girl. Right. Um, yes. Uh, and it happens after this. I think that's the for me that's the mastery of this book. I mean, it's the biggest surprise. The biggest surprise, all of that, what Arfi does, the, the whole, you know, experience of walking through Rome, the Eternal City, which is you know named because it's completely destroyed. Were the, the, was the Colosseum damaged? Yeah. Badly, is what he mentions. I don't well, he said it was a shell. It was a shell of its former self. I don't know what it looked like. 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah, that's strange yeah. because it's kind of, I was thinking, it's sort of amazing when you go to Europe today that as many yeah. of, the, of the things survived as did. But we I guess should, we a lot of them have been repaired. Well, I mean, right? look, at, look at Dresden. That was well, totally right, firebombed, right? right? But like, but like Paris, Paris and Rome, I think, escaped major damage on purpose. I think people just really didn't have the heart to destroy those know. cities. We, we'd have to go back um, and look. I'd have to go back yeah. and research it. But, uh, but there was more damage than we think. But the point is, like, you know, you, you spend... Well, like the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower survived. Yeah, survived. You know. Well, Rome, I mean, Paris did, because Germany, I mean, they gave it up. Both so that, sides yeah, literally yeah, didn't they, fight over it. Right. It's pretty um, pretty remarkable. But you, you spend 35 chapters, mm -hmm. you know, leading up to that point. Right. And you're right. It, it's it's kind of trudging. You're trudging at some point. You're like, oh, come yeah. on, just get on it a little bit. You know? yeah. But then you get there, and you realize that everything just kind of led to that. And he set you up. I mean, he lulled you into this false sense of pacifism when it comes to the book. Like, uh -huh. you know, like whatever happens, happens. But then all of a sudden, he just smacks you in the face yeah. with these last, like, three chapters. Those are the bits that I still think hold the most and, weight today. Yeah. Yeah. And so to me, I mean, that that I think that was a master craftsman right there. I mean, it, yeah. it, I was thinking about how hard this book would be to write, why it took him seven years to write it, you know, right. and, uh, and finish it. And I'm like, oh, my God, just keeping track of, like you said, the characters, but also the stories throughout it. Yeah. Did he come up with a story and say, like, okay, I'm going to put this part over here and then finish it over here? I mean, how did he do that? Um, uh, you just have, you'd have to almost have, yeah, like, one of those it all out. with yeah. the strings. Right, the exactly. Like, when you're yeah. following a serial killer. But then to do all of that and then to bring it, to bring everything into focus in the last bits of the book, I thought it was, I was like, I wish I could write like this. I, that's what I was thinking. It's like, I think that a lot, though. I read Hemingway. I'm like, I wish I read. I, I read Faulkner. I wish I read like that. Yeah. But this, yeah. I was like, oh my god. I, yeah. I just got off of. So, in the next few days, like next week, I'll find out if my book. I spent five years in this book. Oh is going to get published or not? Yeah, I know okay. you're running. And uh, so I, I, it's it's a it's a slog to write something. You're not going to find out if it's going to get published. You're going to find out if this, these people are going to publish it. Correct. You're going to persevere. After yeah. That. No, yeah, you're right. Going, right. So. You know, he spent seven years on this, and right. uh, I can understand. Did you hear the quote that he had where somebody asked him, uh, why Why didn't you ever write another book like Catch-22? Oh, and he said, well, no one else ever has. <laughs> right, why well, would I be able to do it again? Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's a pretty good well, I think I, I think I think for an author like him, why would you want to? You already did it. He wrote you know a sequel. I mean? He did write a sequel, sequel to yeah, in the eighties. Yeah, I can't, remember, the 80s. can't remember what it was called, but I'm sure that wasn't. But it's kind of like, did Sir Edmund Hillary ever climb Everest again? So that was our biggest surprise, and that's kind of my, my argument. So now it's so, it's in your it's in your corners. Balls in my court. So you're yeah. voting, yes, obviously. So my vote doesn't count, but I would persuade. Well, your vote you counts. If I you would, voted no, I would persuade you to vote yes. Okay. So um, a lot of my problem with it, I've. I've I think talked to death the fact that the nonlinear narrative bothered me in the first part. But this book's been a little bit defanged by time mm -hmm. because of its own success. It's one of those classics. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where it's been done so much because it was done so well in this book right. that you lose some of it. Like I was thinking about we we're talking about the, the bureaucratic nature of the book and the complaining about bureaucracy. And I was thinking of how many things I've seen over the years that do that, right? Like I like the Dilbert comic strip. Yeah. Right. Right. Office space. Right. You know, there's so much great comedy about bureaucratic. But you so know, easy. Yeah. You know, inhumanity. Such an easy punchline. That it's been done so many times that obviously this isn't as funny as that to me because I'm living 60 years later. Right. right? Like you know when I when I watch Office Space it, that makes me laugh. Yeah. Douglas Adams is kind of the same sort of thing. There's a lot of like bureau bureaucracy right. going on in that book and that's what's funny. And it's funnier because it's later. Well, that's true. That's humor, I, I think humor, the closer you get to your own time, is just going to be funnier. Yeah. It's just because it's more relevant. Right. Hum comedy is about commenting on society. I think we, we proved that with George Carlin. I think we proved that many times <laughs> yeah. with comedy. It just, you know, so it loses a little bit of it. But, and that repetitive dialogue that sounds like something out of an I Love Lucy episode yeah. would have been revolutionary. To take the sitcom dialogue and stick that into a novel about war mm -hmm. is a terrific idea. Sure. That I've seen done a million times because I live in 2021. Right. Um, so I have to take that into account. And it's the moments you're talking about, the moments of pathos, that really up the ante and continue to be able to be read effectively today as a piece of literature today that hits the same way it did then. The comedy loses it. The pathos still there on the page. And the combination of the two things, and when I remember the techniques that were new and where this book stood in history at the time, then I vote for it as a classic. I 
did not enjoy the book for the most part, but in the second half, it 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 won me over. Gave it a focus, and I would say it would still be worth reading today. All right, you know. So I think it's I think it gets cheers. Yeah. That's awesome. So we'll cheers it. We'll toast it. As a booze writer, which okay. I am, right? Uh, I get a lot of like a writer that gets a lot of booze on the things you write. Like, I write Ooh. well. I write. <laughs> that was the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a full-time dad. I, well, if I say if I say spirits writer, you're going to be all ooh, yeah, Casper. Yeah, okay. Different kind of booze. Right, right. A different kind of spirit. Anyway, uh, but uh, is that why it's called booze? Because it's spirits? Maybe. Oh, that's a good one. I so I get I get free samples all the time. I okay. get I, you know they send me bottles of booze all the time, nice. uh, which is great. But they also sometimes send me like glasses, ah, and okay. they send me you know a bunch of other like kind of kitsch. You know, stuff. Are these highball glasses? Are cool? Yeah, these are highballs. And, and sometimes what they're trying to do is they're trying to get you to really like them so that they'll write a positive review. Of course. Even though it's against the law. My wife is a doctor. Yeah. So she gets free yeah. samples, or she gets free samples all the time. All the time. That does not affect her opinion of their of product course not. at all. I got a bottle of, I can't even remember what the bottle was, mm -hmm. but it came with two Tiffany and Company crystal glasses. Oh, nice. These are Very $150 nice. glasses yeah. each. Yeah. Your booze is not that good. <laughs> Finally, we're at a phase in our lives where you didn't just go out and pawn those, right? No, I haven't. There's definitely been times in my life. Well, somebody gave me a $100 glass, I would sell them. They're currently on eBay. I just haven't. Oh, know. okay. There you go. <laughs> Reserve is too high. Anyway, hey, thank you, everybody, for, for joining us on this uh, episode of Toasting the Classics. Yep. I'm glad that we, we came out with this uh, as Catch-22 as a winner, yep. uh, so to speak. I don't even, what are we doing next time? We gotta choose something that we're gonna put down, right? We just, just it's just we a win streak for the class. I mean, you know, every once in a while, every yeah. once in a while, yeah. But um, yeah. So the next one's a movie. Okay. So the movie I chose, I wanted it to be at least tangentially Christmas related because okay. we're in the Advent yeah. season right, right now. Sure. Uh, I went with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, oh, very good. which yeah. is a movie I have vague memories of. Yeah. I enjoyed it, but I don't remember it terribly well. Let's go back and see whether it's that still sounds fun. great because you know comedy doesn't keep the director. Right? John Hughes? Uh, I think so, yeah. 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 Weird science. No. Uh, yeah, Weird Science, 16 Candles, Pretty Home King, Alone. Right? Home Alone. Did he, or, he might have produced it. I, think he, I don't think, I don't think he did Home Alone. But yeah, I can't wait. Well, that would be perfect. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us for Toasting Classics. I am Clinton. Dave Toasting Classics. Peace out. Peace. That's it for episode 34 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, Check the notes next week for what we'll be drinking while discussing the 1987 film Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and your recommendations for the best in war fiction. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics.